0: Hello and welcome to INV Unfiltered, the podcast on what's new and intriguing in fintech and beyond. This podcast comes from INV Fintech, which is the global fintech accelerator run in partnership with Fiserv, the global banking technology company, and several banks, including US Bank. I'm Phil Ryan, Senior Director at INV Fintech, and you can learn more about us by visiting INVFintech.com. Episodes of INV Unfiltered will be posted at INVUnfiltered.com. And you can reach us through that site and on Twitter, at INV Fintech. Our goal here is to bring you enlightened and thought-provoking guests from across the tech and financial worlds to talk about key issues and opportunities. And I'm very pleased today to welcome Dan Kimmerling, head of API banking at Silicon Valley Bank. Welcome, Dan. Hey, thanks, Paul. So how are people using Silicon Valley Bank APIs? I just saw uh, there's a story out now about open banking, uh, featuring uh, wells fargo uh, that 's an American banker this week, and uh, what are you what are you seeing in terms of open banking and and uh, particular uses at your bank
1: yeah, thanks Phil. I think you know we generally bucket our API approach into two categories: the first category would be the transactional banking products in particular focused on payment services, and we have a number of uh, companies using our products in that space i'd say in particular we find a lot of marketplace style business models that need to uh, collect payments and disperse payments find an api first approach very effective because of the speed and simplicity of the data structures and also the ability to uh use our infrastructure in a way they would use in a way that is similar to the fashion they would use Amazon Web Services or another cloud provider mm-hmm. um, we also uh, in that regard I would also say we find a lot of people prefer to use the API because of the lower cost and time involved with the integration you know some of these integrations used to take weeks or months and now they take minutes or hours. Um, and so uh, our colleagues uh, often prefer... Um, our, our colleagues in the, the account management teams actually prefer to refer clients to the API product versus their legacy counterpart because it's just a better experience mm-hmm. for all parties involved. Mm-hmm. The second category would be what I would call more open platform capabilities. And the most, uh, the most notable of them at the moment is our onboarding API which um uh, is used as part of the Stripe Atlas product, and this allows us to programmatically open bank accounts um, not real time but but very quickly mm-hmm. you, you know, and it allows us to cut the amount of time and expense related with uh, opening s u b bank accounts by two to three orders of magnitude, and that is the first of what I believe will be a number of Platform enhancements we make, which will allow third parties to embed complex banking products into their product workplace What
0: about uh, what about companies that have relied on screen scraping? Are we actually seeing a move from screen scraping to APIs for data sharing? I know that that's what a lot of people want to see,
1: but is that really is that actually happening? Yeah, I mean, I think that at the end of the day. There will always be a tension between consumers, uh, the organizations they give their data to, whether that be banks and financial data or other types of businesses where they give other types of data, and third parties that want access to that data. And I think as an industry, we probably need to come up with some kind of um, standard or perspective on the non-technical aspects of it and also the technical aspects. Um, I think uh, aggregators make very valid arguments about their desire to meet the consumer's need to federate data. Mm -hmm. I think financial institutions make very valid arguments about the liability inherent in sharing that data. Um, But I think that because what we know is that consumers want these experiences and products and services. Uh, we as an industry, it's important for us to provide that capability. Mm-hmm.
0: So many of our listeners are startups, and what are you seeing in terms of the venture space? Yeah, I mean, there. Yeah, you know, which is a space you're involved in. Dan, Dan uh, has a, or is part of uh, uh, Desian's Capital. Am I saying that right? Close enough.
1: My Latin is a little rusty. (laughs) Much closer than most people. (laughs) What I I would say uh, in this regard is that there has been a lot of capital that has flown into the financial services vertical uh, amongst other categories for which dollars flow into the venture ecosystem. At the same time, you, the data suggests that uh, the venture capital ecosystem actually underserves the fintech community because while it is true that 2.5% of venture dollars flow into fintech, what we know is that 14% of global GDP is in FinServe. And so that's a big gap and a big opportunity. Um, so I think that's an interesting... Uh, you know, anecdotal data point. Mm-hmm. You know, SVB
0: has... Um, Why is there that disparity? Is it a hard space for people to, to fathom?
1: Or is it a hard space to make money in? It's a tough business. I You know, I, I don't um, really... I, I'm sure there are many answers. And, and um, maybe the one thing I would say is that... Or, or a hypothesis I would proffer is that investing in financial services is not like investing in software. Investing in software has certain uh, kind of scaling capabilities, uh, yada, yada, yada. Investing in financial services, because of the specialized nature of the distribution, the capital markets, the risk management, the compliance, the distribution, uh, I could go on and on about why PINSERV uh, is not like software. It makes it much closer to the business of investing in life sciences or hardware, mm-hmm. where the kinds of capabilities that um, venture funds provide their portfolio companies are much more highly specialized. Mm-hmm. And the kinds of due diligence and the economic model is just different. Right, right. Um, so Apple
0: released a uh, P2P solution, long-rumored. long, long rumored. Is there any reason to expect this to be more popular than Apple Pay, which the numbers are, are uh, quite, quite small? Well, small from one perspective, I suppose, and large from another.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know how big the Apple Pay numbers are. What I would say is that there are basically four flows of payments. There is a B2B payment. There's a consumer-to-consumer payment. There is a consumer paying a business. And there is a business dispersing capital to a consumer. And at this point, it seems to me that Apple has always built the infrastructure for three of those four. Um, The consumer-to-consumer payment and consumers paying businesses. It doesn't seem... And so uh, Apple this week also released something called Business Messenger, which mm-hmm. allows – did you see this? Yep, yep. Uh, en- enhanced functionality in Messenger for businesses to talk to their customers. Just, right, and a business can have a presence in the Messenger ecosystem. So you you could totally envision a world in which a business that could disperse funds through Apple Pay into a customer's Apple, uh, their wallet application, et cetera. Especially given the cash card and the partnership with Green Dot Bank mm-hmm. that Apple is on. So that strikes me as Apple trying to cover their basis on most of the, let's call it, uh, normal consumer facing fund flows. And um, it seems to me that it's only a matter of time before Apple Pay, especially in the disbursement of funds, becomes a very viable rail. Interesting, and the the
0: total market cap for cryptocurrencies past 100 billion. I saw today. What's your uh, what's your what's your take on that?
1: Well, I think you have to separate out kind of three, at least three different concepts, and mm-hmm. there may, in fact, be more concepts. Mm-hmm. There's um, distributed ledger technologies. Yep, there are chains, there are tokens, there, are, and then. Coins are a subcategory of tokens that I would say are most closely associated with being uh, digital currencies where the value is associated with their proof of work and has a non-linear relationship with the work needed to mint one the marginal coin. Mm-hmm. Um, so I say all of that because it strikes me as... People are investing in crypto coin, like Bitcoin or Ethereum, they're buying BTC or Ether on the theory that it is a proxy for investing in people's excitement for these underlying technologies. And I'm not sure they're necessarily related. (laughs) Now, there may be certain business models, like exchanges, right? Exchanges make their money on volatility and the when people are excited or nervous they trade a lot well we got volatility in the crypto space That's got plenty of volatility so it <laughs> seems like it's a good point, good time to be in the exchange business right but um what is not clear to me is like does bitcoin i, I mean i with very few exceptions i can't go buy a, some shawarma or i can't buy lunch can't get a cup of coffee <laughs> um can't buy a house Right you Can't pay rent With these things Right um, It seems to me More like Where gold is moving Right There's a business In the business of gold And People trade gold Or other precious metals uh, There's a liquid market For platinum And other Metals Seems to me That those probably Going to be a liquid market For trading these Digital tokens Whether those but you don't really see people carrying, you know, bullion around, with, yeah.
0: right? So, commodity, not a currency, for that, the for that. the foreseeable. That's right. All right, uh, Dan, you're about to get on a plane. Uh, what are you? What are you going to read? Are you going to read a book on the flight home, or you watch movies? What's uh, your? Uh, huh. How do you spend your, your transcontinental flight time? I think I'm going to catch up on email. As sad as that may be. <laughs> um, read any good books lately, or did you see Wonder Woman? Um, Either of those questions
1: I want to go see Wonder Woman this weekend ah. With my wife um, It's on the list for the weekend The last really good book I read Well I'm rereading Handmaiden's Tale Oh yeah It's a great book The last It's the book of our times Unfortunately Yeah and television show it seems um, That um uh, Masters of None mm-hmm. um, The last really good book I read recently Was James quite. Coy- uh, James Glick, he wrote a really good book on the history of time travel, which was really cool. I'm a huge fan of James Glick and um, his history of information theory, information history theory of flood, his biography of Richard Feynman. I have his biography of, of Einstein. I've not read it yet, but um, huge fan. Great.
0: Thanks, Dan. I want to thank all of you for joining Dan and me on this episode. Stay tuned to INVUnfiltered.com for more great podcasts. And we hope to see you in San Francisco at Bank Innovation 2018. You too, Dan. Um, Until next time, keep innovating and keep it unfiltered.